Manuary 2022 rolls on today with episode 176. But before I tell you about this week's book, let's switch things up a little bit. I know, this is very not my style, but the year is still new, and it never hurts to try something different now and then. Listeners, if you enjoy SSR and want to give it some extra fuel as we pick up the momentum in 2022, it would mean so much to me if you would leave the podcast a 5-star rating and or a review on Apple Podcasts. We podcasters make this request frequently because it really does go a long way. With more ratings and reviews comes a boost in rankings for the show, so more people can find it and we can get more amazing guests to join me. Plus, I read every single one. I don't take your feedback or the time you take to write it for granted. Thanks in advance for considering. If you like the idea of supporting SSR this year, I would also encourage you to check out Patreon. As a patron, you get access to tons of fun exclusive perks, including an invitation to our Discord channel, SSR reading challenges, monthly newsletters, reading recap videos, Patreon parties, bonus episodes, SSR merch, and membership in the SWR Shit We Read book club, which I personally facilitate. Our Patreon community is truly full of the loveliest people. So if one of your goals for the year is to make new connections, look no further. Visit www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page for more details and to sign up. Now that we've covered that, let's talk about this week's book. Dear Mr. Henshaw was written by Beverly Cleary and published in 1983. It won the Newbery Medal in 1984, so you know it's good. The book is written as a series of letters from a boy named Lee Botts to his favorite author, Boyd Henshaw. In the letters, Lee details the many changes and pressures he's experiencing as a sixth grader, a move to a new school, his parents' divorce, his budding interest in writing, financial pressures, and the regular disappearance of his lunchbox. As you'll soon hear, Dear Mr. Henshaw was incredibly influential for this guest, and hearing him talk about it is pretty cool. We also talk about how the book's themes of isolation are still timely today, the way Lee's letters give readers a uniquely unfiltered view on divorce from a kid's perspective, the beauty of quiet middle grade writing, and writing advice. And since this is the first episode we've done about a Beverly Cleary book since the author's passing in 2021, we talk about her contributions to Kid Lit and her career quite a bit too. My guest this week is Jeff Zentner. Jeff is the author of two New York Times notable books, The Serpent King and In the Wild Light, as well as Goodbye Days and Rain and Delilah's Midnight Matinee. Among other honors, he has won the ALA's William C. Morris Award, the Amelia Elizabeth Walden Award, the International Literacy Association Award, and the Westchester Fiction Award. He's been nominated for the Carnegie Medal three times and long listed for it and the UKLA. He's a two-time Southern Book Prize finalist, and he was a finalist for the Indies Choice Award. He was selected as a Publishers Weekly Flying Start and an Indies Introduced Pick. Before becoming a writer, Jeff was a musician who recorded with Iggy Pop, Nick Cave, and Debbie Harry. He lives in Nashville. Follow Jeff on Twitter and Instagram at Jeff Zentner. If you're not already, be sure you're following SSR on Twitter and Instagram at SSRPod and on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast Community. I would love to see you there. This episode is brought to you by Kensington's newest title, Romancing the Rancher by Kate Pierce. Kate Pierce is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author, and this small-town western romance with heart is the perfect book to cozy up with this winter. Great for fans of Diana Palmer, Jennifer Ryan, and Lindsay McKenna, it touches on themes of family bonds, community roots, and of course, love. 
You can find Romancing the Rancher by Kate Pierce wherever books are sold. Find out more at kensingtonbooks.com. Calling all audiobook fans. When you shop with Libro.fm instead of a larger company, you are supporting independent bookstores, which I think always feels great. The audiobooks you get from Libro.fm are exactly the same as the ones you would buy from the big guys, and they're the same price too. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPODCAST when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to SSR. Hey, Ellie. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited because you reminded me of a book for this episode that somehow hadn't crossed my radar as I'm constantly putting together wish lists for the podcast. It had not come to mind in so many years, and I'm so glad that you suggested it instead of the books that I suggested to you. Today, we are talking about Beverly Cleary's Dear Mr. Henshaw. Can you tell me a little bit about what brought that book to your mind? Because as I said, like I hadn't thought about it in 20, 25 years. So I want to hear more about your history with it and why you were like so quick to be like, this is the book we have to discuss. So my history with Beverly Cleary goes way, way back. I was a I was a big time Ramona fan. I read everything by Beverly Cleary. So basically from I wanna say second to third grade-ish to about fourth grade, like it was Beverly Cleary all the time. I absolutely loved her. I loved the Ramona books. I loved everything. So this was obviously pre-internet. This was in the 80s. And so the way I would learn about new books of hers is I would just go to the library and just look to see what new book of hers was on the shelf that I hadn't read before. And so one day I go to the library and I see this book, Dear Mr. Henshaw, along with the other Beverly Cleary books. And I'm like, well, huh, what is, what is this? And I pick it up and I leaf through it. And I'm like, well, there's no Ramona in here. So that's a little bit of a problem, but not, not too bad because I love everything Beverly Cleary does. So no Ramona is not necessarily a deal breaker. And what I was seeing there in those pages was a boy who was kind of roughly my age. So I, I want to say I was 11 when I discovered this book. And I think Lee in the book is 12 or so. He's like sixth grade. I yes. read the book a while ago. And so I got to kind of refresh my memory a little bit. He's, he's He was roughly my age. And so, of course, it being Beverly Cleary, I took it home and read it. And it was such a profoundly moving experience to me, which was really strange because at the time that I read it, it was far and away the quietest book I had ever read. Mm-hmm. Like I was pretty new to reading fiction in general. I I started my reading life as a real nonfiction reader. Like I would get obsessed with certain topics like whales 
or castles or trucks or whatever. And I would just read all the books in the library about that topic. And so I was very new to fiction in general. And so I had never read a book that was as quiet as Dear Mr. Henshaw. And I just absolutely loved it. I mean, it it just gave me this kind of warm, wonderful feeling of being seen in a book. I felt like I really related to that main character, the relationship he had with books and with authors and how he kind of felt a little bit alone and isolated. So I read it as a kid. I revisited it in when I was probably in high school, I want to say. And then the next time I revisited it was like, except for this podcast, was like two years ago, Mm -hmm. pre-pandemic. Well, I don't want to go too far ahead. You may have questions. So I'm just going to kind of stop there. I've given you my history. So there you have it. Well, thank you for sharing that history. I too was a Beverly Cleary fan, although I don't, it sounds like I wasn't as big of a fan as you were. I will know that this is the first Beverly Cleary episode that we've recorded since we lost Beverly Cleary. And of course, it does feel very special to have a chance to talk about one of her beautiful pieces of work on the podcast. We have done a few episodes about her books in the past. We did do Beezus and Ramona, and there was one other one that I'm forgetting now. And I'll make sure to link to those episodes in the show notes for this episode, listeners. But yeah, I just want to take a moment because that was such a great loss for the Kidlet community. And so I'm thrilled to be talking about her book. I hope that we can do her justice in this conversation. And it's cool to hear that you were such a fan of hers growing up. So I remember finding this book and seeing the cover and being like, hmm, I'm not sure that this book is for me. And we've talked about this on the podcast before. And I grew up in the 90s. And I think at that point, there was this very like heteronormative sense of like, what's a boy book and what's a girl book? And this book at first glance to me in like 1995, 1996, when I was going through my school library, felt like a boy book. But by then I'd probably read every other Beverly Cleary book I could get my hands on. So I was like, okay, I'll read it. And it had that shiny metal sticker on the front that at that point I'd been taught was a good sign. This is a Newbery Medal winner. It won the Newbery Medal in 1984 after being published in 1983. And so I was like, okay, my teacher and my librarian say this means it's a good book. So I guess I'll read it. And I was such a reader. And at that point, I was beginning to write as well. And so the idea that this book was about a kid who was a little bit older than I was at the time, making a direct connection with an author was really cool to me. Um, I also always loved epistolary novels when I was a kid. It's always fun to stumble upon them now for the podcast. It's such a joy to be like, oh, right. It was so fun to read books in that format. This book is about a boy named Lee who's writing letters to his favorite author, Mr. Henshaw. There are some diary entries in here as well. And I do remember like being so pleasantly surprised by it when I was a kid. And I felt the same way now, because like I said, when you mentioned the title, I didn't remember the book at all. And then I got my copy in the mail and I was like, oh, right, this is the book about the letters to the author. And so it was such a nice surprise when I got to pick it up again. So I kind of want to start this conversation off by asking you, like, did you ever write letters to authors when you were a kid? Or like, you're an author now, so you've kind of been on the other side of this. What is it like revisiting this book now that you're a published author, and I'm sure you get mail, like, how does that change the way you view all of this? <laughs> what a great question. So I, I, I never wrote any letters to any author when I was a kid. I mean, that was just, I mean, I, I grew up in this small town. I never met a published author. To me, off, I, I placed authors on such an incredible pedestal. It's, it's the reason, by the way, why I didn't get into writing until I was 
35, 36 years old. And, and after I'd met a published author or two, it was just so intimidating to me. So it would have been unthinkable to me to presume to send a letter to some author in their ivory tower. Like I thought it was <laughs> magical people who wrote these books. You're like, my mail won't arrive there. My, the mail doesn't go to their house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My, my owl can't fly that high. But yeah, so it's funny. It never would have occurred to me to write a piece of fan mail to Beverly Cleary. Although I, I do have to say this, when I was going around to publishers with my first novel, The Serpent King, uh, it sold at an auction. Uh, and one of the houses that was bidding on The Serpent King is also Beverly Cleary's publisher. And so I got to go and meet them in the, in the publishing house and meet their marketing folks and all that. And they mentioned just kind of offhandedly that like the day before I came in to meet with them, they had talked with Beverly Cleary on the phone, who was like 101 years old at that point or something. And I think she maybe just turned 100. And, by, and, and I got to go in a second. I got to talk about Beverly Cleary and how amazing it was that she lived so long. But back to my story. So I'm at this publishing house and I am just absolutely freaking out that they have this direct line to Beverly Cleary. And I'm like, will you please tell her how much her books meant to me? She, mm -hmm. My name will mean nothing to her, but please, will you do that for me? And they said they would and they did. And I was very, very happy about that. As far as getting letters from, from readers, I do very occasionally get a letter in the mail, and that's always really precious to me. I, I love getting letters in the mail from readers. Most often it's, it's emails or messages on social media, that sort of thing. I definitely wouldn't ask a 12-year-old kid to describe what they looked like, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, like Mr. Henshaw does with Lee, a uh, different time, I, maybe. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That doesn't uh, that doesn't hit quite right in yeah, 2021, no, 2022. I, I'm definitely maybe a little more guarded in my responses to uh, to my young readers, but but no, it's very interesting to read this book now from the perspective of, of an author and to see what an amazing amount of craft advice there is in this book for for writers. Beverly Cleary is like like this is her on writing, like Stephen King's on writing. This is kind of her on writing. I feel like a lot of her voice comes through here. And uh, just the beauty of the craft on display in this book, to appreciate it as an author is, is really something else. I mean, it is just an exquisitely written book. I do feel like it has aged very well in, in a lot of respects. One respect being particularly poignant at the moment in just kind of how isolated Lee is and like how much of his existence sort of occurs on this virtual plane. Like it was not an electronic plane. It was not a digital plane, but it was a virtual plane. Like letters are a kind of form of virtual communication. So how much of his existence exists is in that way feels very modern to me. And the, the economic hardships that his family faces feel very modern to me. I mean, it feels his situation where they're just kind of barely scraping by and they're like, I would not consider them middle class by any means. Like they are definitely working poor. I feel like there's a lot of kids in this situation. So you've got a kid who's living virtually, working poor. I feel like there's a lot for kids today in this story. 
It's so interesting that you bring up the idea of isolation because I found this article from the Harvard Crimson that was just published in April of 2021, actually. And I assume that this was part of kind of the slew of of tributes to Beverly Cleary that came out after her passing. But the first sentence of this article, and I'll be sure to include a link to this in the show notes, is after a year of isolation, Beverly Cleary's 1983 Newbery winning Dear Mr. Henshaw takes on new meaning as protagonist Lee navigates an unromanticized and bittersweet childhood full of loneliness and struggles against an elusive father figure. I was like, oh, wow. First of all, like leave it to the Harvard Crimson to make a connection between like the year and a half, almost two years now that we've all had and dear Mr. Henshaw. But, and I think that you'll really appreciate this article, given that I now know you're a super fan of Beverly Cleary, but this, the article goes on to talk about how different Dear Mr. Henshaw is relative to the rest of Cleary's books. Dear Mr. Henshaw is a thoroughly lonely book, perhaps more fitting for pandemic times than the more popular and numerous volumes of the Henry Huggins or Ramona Quimby series, both of which feature social middle-class adolescents in Portland, Oregon. There, the Charlie Brown or Arthur-like neighborhood is always bustling with cheery children and parents whose funny adventures around town entertain and inspire a young reader. I do think, though, that the DNA of Ramona is in Dear Mr. Henshaw Mm. in terms of the contention with with class. Like something I remember about the Ramona books is there's this scene in one of the Ramona books where – the mom's just like, I'm not cooking dinner tonight. We're going to get hamburgers. And that was like the biggest deal. It was a big deal for me growing up. Like we never went out to eat, like to, to go out to a fast food restaurant was like a big deal. And so to me, that's kind of one of the little, little hints. I mean, as, as I recall, Ramona's family was also struggled a lot with money and those those struggles with money were really on the page. So I see the point they're making, but I think there's a lot of commonality between the Ramona books and Dear Mr. Henshaw, just that she takes a lot of the things that she toys with in the Ramona books and really like puts them front and center in Dear Mr. Henshaw. Yeah, I would say that's true. I think the class, I think the distinction they're making in class in this article is maybe not totally fair. They go on to write, Taken Alone, Dear Mr. Henshaw shows Lee at his emotional worst an important model for children who could be going through similar feelings. Beverly Cleary will be remembered as a writer of sunny children's books, her penchant for portraying suburban adventures, relatable family trivialities, and a sympathetic animal world cement her works in the pantheon of formative novels for elementary schoolers. Ask any Cleary reader about her books, and while Ramona Quimby will necessarily come up, Lee Botts, who's of course the protagonist in Dear Mr. Henshaw, might not, but it is important to remember Lee, though not Cleary's favorite character, a necessary one for young readers to be exposed to. I thought that was just a really interesting take on how this book kind of stands apart from the rest of her career. Um, Not to say that like, we don't get that depth of character from her other books, but I do think this is quite different in tone. Yeah, I agree. This and and of course, it's sequel Strider. A lot of people forget that Strider exists, but I think Strider's just as good as Dear Mr. Henshaw, if not better in some ways. Like, uh, I'm going to have to come back on your show again and talk about Strider. Uh... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you're welcome anytime. I didn't even know about Strider until I was doing my research for this episode. So we're going to have to do a part two. Oh, yeah. No, that's I think that's really common just to not know that there is a sequel to this book. But the sequel is is just as lovely. But but you're right. This book and the sequel do kind of stand apart in her catalog. 
I read that she was inspired to write this book because she received two different letters from readers of hers who she specifies didn't know each other, which I did think was kind of funny because like when we think about the way we're connected in 2021 and 2022, of course, it's like everybody's connected somehow. But she was very clear about the fact that like these two little boys didn't know each other. And I guess they both separately asked her if she would write a book about a boy whose parents were divorced. And so that was kind of the nugget that inspired Dear Mr. Henshaw. And all of these years later, I do kind of have to laugh too, because it's like, in all of her years of writing, the fact that she'd only gotten like two messages about that. Now that is like such fodder feels like the wrong word. But this is the stuff of stories now, especially for young people, like challenges people are having with their families, figuring out new relationships. Um, And I just love that in like the early 80s, she was like, well, two kids wanted to read about a kid whose parents were divorced. So speaking of that, this is this is a little bit I guess of a of a tangent from what you were talking about but while you were talking about it I was realizing how much of Dear Mr. Henshaw is in every single one of my four books mm. so beginning with The Serpent King sorry I've got some dogs barking here hope you can't hear them We're a very dog friendly podcast they're so very they're cute. more than welcome they're I'm very sure. cute. You, you can go to my Instagram and see pictures of them but anyway in The Serpent King, it's a book about these three misfit teenagers growing up in rural Tennessee and kind of the main character, they all have points of view in the novel, but the main character is a young man who lives with his mother. His father's in prison. He lives with his mother, just like Lee and his mother. My main character in The Serpent King is named Dill. His mother works uh, as a cashier at a gas station and as a housekeeper at a motel. They're definitely a working poor family. So there's Dear Mr. Henshaw there. In my second book, Goodbye Days, the main character is a young man who wants to be a writer someday, who's kind of very much in his own head, like very much working out his own emotions. There's a lot of Lee bots in that character. My third book, Rain and Delilah's Midnight Matinee, one of the characters, Delia, lives in a trailer with her mother. So it's just the two of them and they struggle to get by. So there's Lee and his mother there. And then in my fourth book, In the Wild Light, Cash Pruitt lived with his mother in a trailer and she died of a fentanyl overdose. And then he went to live with his grandparents. So I feel like there's a lot of Lee bots and his mother there. Like that model, that archetype, if you will, kind of seared itself into my brain. Like reading this book again, I was like, wow, this book really got under my skin. And I have been writing my versions of this book now four times over. Oh, that is so interesting. What a cool experience. So coming back to Lee Botts, while we're while we're talking about him and how he's influenced your writing, when you read him now as an adult, can you think at all about maybe what parts of him you may have most connected with when you were a kid? Like, do you have any thought as to what parts of him you latched onto then? And are there specific things now that you latch onto about him? Just the feeling of loneliness. You know, as as a kid, I was a lonely kid. I didn't have tons and tons of friends. My life is a lot more full now. But when you're a lonely kid, you kind of still carry with you a kernel of loneliness. Like it is like a tangible thing that you carry inside you and never really goes away. It's like a virus that never leaves your body, right? Once you've tasted it, you know it's always there kind of waiting below the surface. You're always kind of waiting for everyone to leave your life. And so that is the thing I most relate to in Lee and kind of the ways that he is looking for his place in the world. I can really relate to that as well. Thank you for sharing. I think 
I think there's so much about Lee that is almost universally appealing, whether it's the loneliness or just the sense of like figuring it out. He's new to this whole like child of divorce thing. And that's now a thing that he has to work through. And I too grew up as a child of divorce. My parents got divorced when I was much younger than Lee is in the book. But there were a few lines that really struck me having been through a lot of these things myself and still navigating it as an adult. There's a moment after Lee is explaining something about his mom to to Mr. Henshaw. As you mentioned, like Mr. Henshaw sends him a series of borderline inappropriate questions, one of which is like, what do you look like? But also like asking him questions about his family. And I, of course, like craft wise made a note that was like, oh, like what an interesting way to get an exposition without asking, you know, without having, without having Lee being like, hello, my name is Lee Watts. This is what my mom does for a job. But anyway, I totally noticed that yeah, too. Totally. I was like smart, like yeah. really way to go, Beverly. Yeah. But after he does his little spiel about his mom, there's a line where he says, like, I try to treat both of my parents equally. So I'll have to come back and tell you about my dad in the next letter. And I just, I think that moments like that are so well-drawn and so relatable to to kids who have grown up with parents who are divorced or, or who are growing up with any kind of just kind of like change, any type of shift in their family. Kids are so much more aware of those things. And I think often we give them credit for, and Lee speaks to that so nicely I think the other thing that's really interesting about Lee in this book is that because of the format, because the story is told primarily in letters between Lee and his favorite author, and then with a few diary entries as well, what we're getting is like a completely unfiltered, unmoderated view of what this child is experiencing. I think even in books that are told from a first person perspective, there's still always some level of filter. You know, there's always some level of self-awareness, I think, in that. And there was something about the way that this story was presented through the letters that just felt so raw to me. Like it felt like this kid finally had somebody that he could talk to, but at the same time, he felt anonymous in that experience. Like he could just kind of spill everything to Mr. Henshaw and nobody would find out. And it felt so genuine and authentic. Whereas even stories told about similar subject matter with first person point of view, it still feels a little stilted to me. And part of that is just the magic of Beverly Cleary, I think. But the choice of format was so smart. And I just I appreciate it having now read a lot of books meant for middle graders and teens as part of this podcast. I think this was probably like the most honest portrayal of what it's like to be a kid going through divorce in the family. And I just I thought that that was really impressive. Yeah, yeah. I didn't come from divorce. My parents have been married now like 40 years, but it definitely gave me a window into what that experience was like for my friends who were going through divorce. And it definitely made me more empathetic to their struggle. While you were talking about things you identified with, I I was thinking about a couple more aspects of Lee's story that I really identified with. Just the quietness of his triumphs and, Mm. and how hard his little disappointments hit. Like when he had a little cheesecake from his mom's catering job that he brought to school and somebody swiped from his lunch, like how that really hits so hard when you have so little to look forward to. That's like your whole day and somebody takes that from you. And so the way Beverly Cleary nailed that and made that seem so important and so devastating, like what are even the stakes of this book? Like I pose that question to you. What What's at stake in this book? That's a great question. Um, what is at stake? 
it's hard to answer, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess what's at stake is like Lee's day-to-day contentment, but that's such a fluid thing. Like, as we all know, as adults, like contentment and happiness, like that's that's not real. I mean, that, yeah. those aren't real stakes. And for, for like a 12-year-old, like those are such yeah. quiet stakes, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess the stakes are like he he's trying to figure out who's stealing his lunch. That's a big problem that he's trying to get to the bottom of. Um, so he he would really like to have full ownership of his lunch, as you mentioned, like little pleasures like this cheesecake mean a lot to him. And so it it's really painful when people take the good food out of his lunch. I think the other thing that's at stake maybe is his relationship with his dad, which is really complicated, but that's not even top of mind for him the whole book. Like we kind of come in and out of these different situations that he's in and it all comes together to form his daily life. But I think to your point, there's not necessarily like one high stakes situation. Yeah. And there's no villain in the story. I mean, the dad is, is, is not a villain. I mean, he's obviously a a guy who's kind of doing his best. Maybe he's not the world's greatest dad in the world, but he seems to be doing his best to connect with Lee. And I, I mean, I felt a lot of sympathy for the dad, felt a lot of sympathy for the mom. I feel like Beverly Cleary did a really good job of expressing through Lee's eyes why the mom and the dad ultimately didn't work out, like Mm -hmm. expressing this very kind of adult view of relationships through a child's eyes, which is really remarkable. This book is just, man, it's a masterpiece. It's so good. Yeah, I loved reading about Lee's impression of his parents also and what struck me. And I think I had a similar reaction with Beezus and Ramona. And part of it is just that like the reality of my age often sets in as I'm reading these books. I was struck by how young Lee's parents probably are. Lee's mom talks about how they fell in love, I think, right after high school. And it was all very fast and romantic. And so I'm doing the math and I'm like, his parents are maybe like in their early 30s and I'm in my early 30s. And here I am like living with my golden retriever and my husband and running a podcast and working a lot. And, you know, that all feels like a lot of responsibility. Then you read this book and you read about these people that are really struggling to get by as as you described earlier in this conversation. And like Lee's mom has the weight of the world on her shoulders because she's responsible for Lee. And she's now been through this upheaval with a divorce. And I kept having to remind myself like, oh, there are people who experience all of this when they're my age and younger. Um, And it's, I think it's an important perspective shift. Uh, Obviously, this book was written in the early 80s. And so times have changed. I think there's like a moving target as far as the average age at which different things happen. But certainly at various periods in history, and still now, these are problems and stresses that people my age are navigating. And it made me feel very immature reading this. Yeah. And this is talking about this. I'm just like reflecting on how much of American history Beverly Cleary saw. Yeah. She was born in 1916 and she died in 2021. That is absolutely insane. For the last several years, I would occasionally like tweet something like, How crazy is it that theoretically Beverly Cleary could write a Ramona book where Ramona is a huge Billie Eilish fan? That absolutely blows my mind. I wish she had. I wish (laughs) she had. The idea that that Beverly Cleary and I were both writers 
for five years from 2016 to 2021. For five years, half a decade, Beverly Cleary and I were both writers. It just absolutely, it floors me. It is insane. 105 years is so long to be alive. Yeah, it is. It is pretty amazing. And we were lucky to have her for so many years. Speaking of Beverly Cleary and your love for her, and and we kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier on, but this book is in a lot of ways her on writing because it's her opportunity to talk about her philosophies about telling stories and and how she writes. When you come back to this book as an adult and, and as an author yourself, what do you see as like the most important nuggets of writing advice that she's giving here? Or what do you think you're able to kind of discern about writing that maybe you wouldn't have been able to when you were a kid. So, um, and here's my copy, by the way, this is, uh, the copy I'm working with. Do you have yours handy? I do. Oh, you have the heart. You have like the hardcover library edition. I have the paperback. Oh no, mine's paperback. Oh, it is. Yours looks yeah, yeah. like more, yours looks cooler than it mine. It's shiny, but no, it's, it's paperback. So we, but it, it ha- like- oh, it has the, it has the border though. It has like the cool old school, um, like yearling paperback border. Mine, I don't think does. Yeah. Yours looks a, maybe a little more modern. I don't know. Yeah. But I like yours anyway, better. I, I love this. I love the Paul Zielinski illustrations in yeah. this, by the way. My friend Alex London uh, just uh, announced a, a book deal where Paul Zielinski is illustrating his book. And I'm so insanely jealous about that. That's so cool. But but writing advice. Okay. So Lee wins this competition and he gets to eat lunch with a writer miss badger which is a great name by the way like amazing character name mrs really badger great name. <laughs> really great name and i feel like beverly cleary is just like straight up turning to the camera here i'm, I'm gonna read a little bit here please do oh said mrs badger so you're the author of a day on dad's rig lee's father is a truck driver everyone was quiet None of us had known the real live author would have read what we had written, but she had, and she remembered my title. I just got honorable mention, I said, but I was thinking she called me an author. A real live author called me an author. What difference does that make? Asked Mrs. Badger. Judges never agree. I happened to like a day on dad's rig because it was written by a boy who wrote honestly about something he knew and had strong feelings about. You made me feel what it was like to ride down a steep grade with tons of grapes behind me but I couldn't make it into a story, I said, feeling a whole lot braver. Who cares, said Mrs. Badger with a wave of her hand. She's the kind of person who wears rings on her forefingers, which is a great detail. Like, I know so much about this character from the fact that she wears rings on her forefingers. Yeah. What do you expect? The ability to write stories comes later, when you've lived longer and have more understanding. A Day on Dad's Rig was splendid work for a boy your age. You wrote like you and you did not try to imitate someone else. This is one mark of a good writer. Keep it up. So I have chills. I have chills. Like, let's pause because I have like the chills from hearing it out loud. <laughs> it's so great. I, I feel like that is Beverly Cleary turning to the camera and just delivering her writer manifesto. Because Mr. Henshaw's a little bit too much of a butthead to yeah. be giving <laughs> such... It's, it's, it's very funny to me that Beverly Cleary chooses to make Mr. Henshaw such kind of a, a, a of a difficult jackass a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, I, he, his good heartedness definitely comes through, but I feel like it's through Mrs. Badger that uh, Beverly Cleary really speaks to us, the reader. Yeah. The moment when she remembers Lee's story 
And he says, like, the famous author knew me and called me an author. I had chills from, like, the tips of my toes to the top of my head when I read that because I grew up as a kid who always loved to write. I still love to write. I'm getting my MFA right now, as listeners know. And so just to be, like, recognized in any small way by anybody who works in this world is still meaningful to me and certainly was meaningful to me when I was a kid. I think the fact that Lee viewed himself as small, like he was like, oh, I didn't win. Like it was just, I couldn't even write a whole story. It was just like a little memory that I wrote down. And I think the fact that Mrs. Badger still recognized him as an author, it's the kind of writing advice that you see on Twitter sometimes that's like meant to encourage writers who are frustrated on their works in progress. But it's this idea of like, oh no, you're an author. Like all you have to do to write all you have to do to be a writer is write. And if you like keep pushing forward, like you are an author. And sometimes those platitudes are like a little annoying on Twitter when you're really stuck on a scene. But then I read it in a kid's book and I'm like, oh, that that's really beautiful. Like writers write. And that's really what it's all about. And that scene, you can totally see that as like the origin story for Lee Bott's famous author, like him totally. reflecting on that that moment, like 30 years hence. Yeah, just such a such a great, great scene. I'm going to put you on the spot for writing advice now, because sure. we're talking about what Beverly Cleary included in her writing manifesto. And I know we have a lot of, of course, book lovers, but also writers in our community. If you were to write a writing manifesto, whether it was something like Stephen King's on writing or whether you were kind of sneaking tips in like in Dear Mr. Henshaw, what kinds of things would you want to share with aspiring writers? Yeah. So first things first, I was never able to become a writer until I gave myself permission to try things and fail and and until I overcame my fear of failure. And the and the way I was able to do that was by surviving the death of one creative career, which was music. I was a musician originally. That's how I began my creative life. That's how I've I spent, you know, all of my 20s, most of my 30s was as a musician. And when ultimately it became clear that dream was kind of a dead end, then that's when circumstances led me to to find writing. But surviving that failure is what taught me that there is life after failure. And the only true failure is to not try things, is to not even give yourself the opportunity to succeed. Because if you never give yourself the opportunity to, to succeed, there's a 100% a chance you'll fail. You know, there's that, that, that old saw, the answer to the question you never ask is always no, mm. right? The answer to the, to, the, to the book you never write is always no. It's the same sort of thing. So that's the first thing I would say is give yourself the freedom to fail. Be prepared to forgive yourself your failures. That's the first thing you need. The second thing I think is to armor yourself just enough uh, against criticism that you let in enough criticism to make yourself better, but not enough to break you. So I see two types of, of writers who never get published. The first is the kind who doesn't let in any criticism at all, just just bounces right off them. They are convinced they're perfect. They are convinced that to make any concession to any criticism is to compromise their vision and their artistic integrity, which is just unacceptable. And those kind of people never get published, right? The second type of person who never gets published is the kind of person who is broken by every criticism and just shattered and like, oh, if there's this much red on the paper, like I must not be cut out for this. I should probably move on. That's the other kind of person who doesn't get published. So you have to let in just the right amount of criticism 
to make you stronger and to make you a better writer, but not to break you. So that's the second thing. The third thing is to look at the world around you. I find so much of what doesn't work in books, whether it be dialogue, whether it be characterization, anything like that, is a product of a lack of observation. Okay? It's like, Look how many times these characters wink on this page. You've got three winks on this page. How often do people actually wink at each other in real life? Uh, It's a very bizarre stilted motion. Didn't that look strange? I just winked at Allie for those of you who can't (laughs) see. Wasn't that strange to see? Yeah, it was. Uh It's such an odd motion. It's such an odd action that, that to have it occurring frequently in a book means that you're not observing the way people actually interact in their body language, and you're not observing the way your characters are interacting. You're not envisioning them in your head. And that's why that sits on the page the way it does. So you have to really observe people. If you want to write characters accurately, you cannot bring your own baggage to the table. You cannot project onto your characters. You cannot make your characters fit the mold that you want them to. You have to sit back and let those characters kind of write themselves and let those characters be who you are. And that's a product of being observant, by the way. The more observant you are, the more ability you will have to set aside your baggage, to set aside the lenses through which you view the world, and to render characters in an accurate way. One more piece of writing advice. Know what kind of stories you write. Not every story should be written by every author. I love all kinds of stories. I love fantasies. I love sci-fi. I love horror. I love lots of different kinds of stories. But there is a type of story that I write. And I don't need to try to write every kind of story that I love. I see a lot of people getting themselves into trouble, spinning their wheels, trying to write a type of story that they may love, but they just can't write. They just can't execute it. And so be honest with yourself. Know what kind of story you write and then write that story. Thank you, Jeff. That's all such good advice. And now if you don't want to write your writing manifesto, you can just refer people to the SSR podcast. That one episode I did that one time where I gave all my advice. I will say fun fact. I have, in fact, gotten the note. There are too many winks in this chapter. So that's a real thing that happens. That has happened to me, or maybe it just happens to me. I don't know. So I really appreciate all that writing advice. And I'm sure that our listeners will as well. I I think something that's interesting, even just in terms of like how the pages of this book look while we're talking about writing, as we go through the book, Lee's entries, his diary entries, and his letters to Mr. Henshaw, they get progressively longer. And they also are better written over the course of the book. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's really fascinating. Like, I do think, I think I always knew that I wanted to write and be a writer. I think to a certain degree, I kind of like found myself through writing, although that's sort of cheesy. But I was never like a journaler. That was never really my thing. But I think that there is something to be said in this book for the connection between like, Lee finding himself as a writer and Lee finding himself or finding his footing in this new environment that he's in. What would you say to that? Like, was that something that you picked up on as well? So I I think I did subconsciously, although I, it kind of took you pointing it out for me to be like, Oh yeah, yeah, that's totally true. Like you can really chart his growth throughout the course of this book 
through those letters and through those journal entries and, and him growing as a writer, him growing in emotional intelligence, it feels really organic and real. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I mean, at the beginning, there are like, I think three or four letters initially that he writes when he's in first and second grade to dear Mr. Henshaw, to dear Mr. Henshaw. His name is Mr. Henshaw. Boyd Henshaw, actually, which I <laughs> always forget. Like to me, he's just always Mr. Henshaw. Such a good name, Boyd Henshaw. Beverly Cleary had a way with names too, really as she did with everything else. But the first few letters for Mr. Henshaw were written when Lee is much younger. And I think that's to show us that like Mr. Henshaw's writing has always had a special place in his life and in his heart. And then his relationship with this author, of course, changes and develops as he gets older. So in those early chapters, they're very obvious things, like there's misspellings and a lot of kind of glaring grammatical errors. And then in the first few letters that he writes when he's in sixth grade, it all feels very reluctant. Like the sentences are very short. He's kind of rude (laughs) to Mr. Henshaw. He doesn't really seem to be enjoying the writing process. And then over the course of the book, it, it changes and the writing becomes better and richer. And he just has more to say. And I think a lot of that comes from journaling. Like Mr. Henshaw is the one who recommends to him that he starts journaling. And in order to become comfortable doing that, Lee starts writing to dear Mr. Pretend Henshaw. And that's how he like adjusts to the feeling of writing to like an empty room, basically, or writing to himself. But it's almost like as he journals and just like practices writing, puts pen to paper on a regular basis, then his ability to write to other people also improves. So I think that's also a good writing tip. If you want to be a writer, you have to write, even if it's to yourself. As I was reviewing my notes before you and I jumped on today, there was one little section that jumped out to me as so beautiful. And I wanted to make sure I brought it up before we start to wrap things up. We kind of talked a little bit about the problem that Lee is having with his lunchbox. And that's like a problem that has to be solved. He keeps finding that like his favorite things are being taken or his whole lunch is being taken and he's at a new school. So he's not really sure how to go about it. I think this is meant to kind of illustrate the fact that like He wishes that he had a different masculine presence in his life, sort of. He's like, if I had a dad, he would help me figure out how to do this. Um, And of course, I read that in 2021. And I'm like, your mom could help you too. But this is 1983. And this was what was going on. Uh, So he decides that he wants to make a like a lunchbox burglar alarm, which is really cute and endearing and not something that I'd ever heard of. Totally something I would have tried as a kid, by the way. Were you like, you experimented with stuff like that? Totally, totally. And it would have been a complete failure. (laughs) So he goes to the hardware store. And in order to not make it a complete failure, he asks for help from the guy who works at the hardware store. They make it work and people stop giving him a hard time. There are two lines that are written that I pulled out from kind of the aftermath of the burglar alarm situation. The first is, nobody has robbed my lunchbox since I set it off that day. I never did find out who the thief was. And now that I stopped to think about it, I am glad. If he had set off the alarm when my lunchbox was in the classroom, he would have been in trouble, big trouble. Maybe he was just somebody whose mother packed bad lunches, jelly sandwiches on that white bread that tastes like Kleenex. Or maybe he had to pack his own lunches and there was never anything good in the house to put in them. And then the second great line was, I'm not saying robbing lunchboxes is right. I am saying I'm glad I don't know who the thief was because I have to go to school with him. Yeah, yeah. See, that ah, I love that. I don't even know what to say about it. It just makes me feel like my wheels are turning and 
there's so much empathy in those lines and so much perspective and they're just lovely. Well, yeah. And, and she is, Beverly Cleary is hinting there at that, that there's some other story of some other kid out there who maybe has a life even tougher than Lee's. Like maybe his, maybe this kid's economic situation is just as bad or worse than Lee's. And doesn't even have a great mother around to take care of him. So he's got these crappy lunches and he has to kind of scavenge and forage for food. Yeah, I love, love that section. I'm so glad you brought it up because it really does. There's a lot of story in those lines. There's, it tells a lot. Yeah, he doesn't want anybody else to get in trouble, especially if they're going through a harder time than he is. I think he sees the bright spot in the fact that his mom has this job that forces her to work a lot because it's a job that enables her to give him all of these delicious snacks because she works for a catering company. And so, yeah, it just it shows us a lot about him and about the way he views the world. And I just love those lines. I have one more question for you before we really start to wind things down. And it's about the omission of any responses from Mr. Henshaw himself. Was that something that you remember wanting when you were a kid? Or was it something that you kind of thought about at all coming back to the book now? Like, would you have included a letter from Mr. Henshaw? Or were you happy that there that we didn't get any actual replies from him? So when I was a kid, and I read this, it was a sort of a trope in stories focused on on kids and directed toward kids to have the adults be absent in some way. So you see that trope in the Charlie Brown movies where the adults are like, wah, 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 wah. So you see it there. You see it. um, I used to watch, what was it? Electric Company that had the Bloodhound Gang on uh, PBS, I think. And you never saw Mr. Bloodhound. So that was another instance. There were just, I feel like there were a whole lot of other ones too. A lot of kids IP that entirely omitted the adults. So I felt like reading it, I didn't think this in such a conscious and coherent way, but I think I probably just accepted this book as another entrant in that category. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just the adults are absent. We don't hear their voice. Do I wish now that I heard Mr. Henshaw's voice? No. What I do and am thinking about now, though, during our conversation is I would love the book Dearly Bots, which is a a novel for adults written from the perspective of an author who's struggling, like his artistic life is flagging, maybe things are not going well in his personal life. And his lifeline is this connection with this kid who makes him feel like he's putting something of value into the world. That's what I want. I want the book Dear Lee Bots. I don't want Mr. Henshaw's responses to Lee Bots in Dear Mr. Henshaw. I mean, I don't know what you're working on right now, Jeff, but that <laughs> sounds like it has legs. Uh, I, I certainly would buy it. <laughs> maybe it's your tribute to Beverly Cleary. Just a thought. Let us know. Maybe we can get an exclusive uh, little there sneak preview. So you've been hinting at your answer to this question throughout our time together, but I'd love to hear you really recap the way that you relate the experience of coming back to Dear Mr. Henshaw Um, And how that compares to your memories of it from when you were a kid, how it holds up. Were there any differences between like your memories of it and how you experience it now? So I I experience it now very differently as as an author, because I am kind of Mr. Henshaw now to, to some kids. And I do come to this with looking at the engine under the hood looking at at the way this story is stitched together, looking at the craft of it, looking at just 
the the stark beauty of this, something that I, I noticed time and again is the most exquisitely written middle grade novels could more easily be marketed to an adult literary market mm. than 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 the most exquisitely written YA novels, I think, in a lot of instances. Because they are so stark and spare and unadorned and just kind of emotionally raw. And it really, really made me want to write something in that vein. It made me want to write a stark, beautiful, just deeply emotionally honest middle grade book. So when I first read it, the first few times that I read it, I was purely enjoying it as a reader. This time when I came to it, I enjoyed it as a writer. And it really like gave me the hunger to write a story like this. Like, I feel like I've tried to write my dear Mr. Henshaw in my previous four books, but didn't do it. I feel like I still need to write my dear Mr. Henshaw. It's it's out there still waiting for me. And that's what kept going through my head on this reread. Oh, that's so beautiful. I'm so glad you had that experience. Thank you so much for reading this book with me again and for talking about it with me. Other than Dear Mr. Henshaw, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our SSR community? Mm, Yeah, so I have been reading Cloud Cuckoo Land by Anthony Doerr, which is absolutely amazing. I mean, the guy's a genius. I I don't know what to say. Like, he's absolutely incredible. I think he's somehow underrated in spite of having won the Pulitzer Prize and been a National Book Award finalist now at least twice. Cloud Cuckoo Land, absolutely incredible. Ocean Vong's book, On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous, is absolutely exquisite. Again, that's another adult book. Another adult book that is in the vein of Mr. Hinshaw in terms of it being very short. I love short, quick books, is Open Water by Caleb Azuma Nelson, which is really, really incredible. On the kids' side... Recently, I read the book Orbiting Jupiter by Gary Schmidt, which feels more like Dear Mr. Henshaw than any book I've read in a really long time. In fact, I can't think of a book that feels more like Dear Mr. Henshaw than Orbiting Jupiter, which I read very recently kind of on a whim. So those are my recommendations. I will include links to all of those in the show notes for this episode. And of course, I will include links to your books. You mentioned your latest book, In the Wild Light earlier on, but is there anything else you'd like to share with us about it? Maybe what your favorite part of the book is? Oh, well, my favorite part of In the Wild Light is the poetry. So I decided in In the Wild Light that I was going to kind of tackle my final writing frontier, which is to publish poems, just to get poems on the page for people to read. I, I was a songwriter for a lot of years, and then I was a novelist, but somehow I skipped over poetry And now I've come back to it. And in the book, In the Wild Light, it actually includes poems written by the main character, Cash Pruitt. And so I'm really proud of that aspect of the book. And I'm I'm proud of myself for being brave enough to potentially fail and and put those in there. I don't know if they're successful, but they're there. So... (laughs) That's so cool. I I hope you all like them. Congratulations for tackling that writing frontier. One of my writing teachers says, think about the thing that you're most scared to write as a fire and then run toward it. Oh, that's good. The way I put it is I I get on my horse and I ride toward the things that scare me. So Mm -hmm. I think that's good advice. 
Well, congratulations on In the Wild Light and on your other three books. And uh, I don't know, Dear Lee Bot's coming like 2024-ish. <laughs> Does that sound doable? I mean, That's, we'll have to yeah. talk to your editorial yeah, team, but like, we'll, we'll pencil it in. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you so much, Jeff. This was so much fun. Thank you for having me. This was wonderful. Thanks, Allie. Bye. Bye-bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>